Hey everybody, we'd like to welcome you to the Ewok Podcast. We hope your day's going good. This is the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church located in Wilton, Maine. And today we're going to hear a message from Robbie Locke, our senior pastor. We hope that it's a blessing to your life and that God uses it to help you walk closer with him. And our prayer is that you would grow closer to him in truth and in love. Well, without further ado, here's Pastor Robbie. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to read, uh, begin in verse 9. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 once again, and then uh, we will begin our study of the Word. The rest of this passage really fits all together. There are a couple of main thoughts that are covered in verses 9 to 21. That's why I read the whole passage. I assure you we will not make it through the whole passage today, but I do want you to understand that verses 9 through 21 really fit together, and they're kind of of, uh, truths that build one upon another to reach a final conclusion at the end. So uh, I wanted to read the whole passage. Let's just bow for prayer as uh, we begin this morning. Our God and Father, we are here in your house because we want to hear your voice. Lord, we know that human instruments are weak, and I am certainly weak. My desire, however, is that your spirit might take control, Lord, of my mind and of my lips, Lord, so that the words that I say will truly be in accord with the precious and holy scriptures. I have often prayed and said, Lord, if any of these thoughts are mine and mine alone, may they be forgotten forever. But that which lines up with thy holy and eternal truth, may it be written upon our hearts and result in transformation. Lord, do your work today, and we'll be careful to praise you for Jesus' sake. Amen. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In our study last Sunday, we, in verses 7 and 8, talked about the definition of love. And we said that, first of all, God himself is love. This is not something God possesses. This is something that God is. It's a part of his nature. Even as he has grace and he is mercy and he's omnipotent, These are not separate things that are disconnected from one another. They are all a part of God's eternal nature. And God is love. If you want to understand what love is like in a practical way, look at God because God is the greatest manifestation of love. He himself is love. And we said last week that that love has to do with a willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of those that we love, even when those we love are not deserving of that love. That's how God loves us. And so we find the definition of love in verses 7 8, that God himself is love, and he has sacrificed so that we might be able to experience the blessing of redemption through Jesus Christ. Now I want to pick up in verses 9 and 10 with the second major point. This is in your bulletin in the notes. The manifestation of love. The manifestation of love. It says, In this the love of God was manifested toward us. The word manifested means to come out into the open. Something that is made public. God demonstrated publicly his love for the world when, it says, God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. God demonstrated his love in sending Jesus Christ into the world. You'll notice in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates, that is he manifests his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the condition of sinners, when we were undeserving of the love of God, in spite of being undeserving, God sent his son anyway. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves me. Jesus Christ is the preeminent manifestation of God's love. He's God's only begotten son who came to earth in the flesh. 
Now, there's something that I want you to see here that I think is very important. I thought I had put that on the thing, but I didn't. Here we go. The incarnation, listen to this carefully, the incarnation, that's Christ coming in the flesh, was the supreme demonstration of a divine love that was and is both sovereign and seeking. God's love is sovereign and it is seeking. What does that mean? It is sovereign in the sense in which God himself of his own free will manifests his love and God made the decision before the foundations of the world to manifest that love to you and to me. If we are saved here today, it's because God chose us unto salvation. He elected us. He predestined us to be conformed one day to the image of his son. God's will is sovereign in salvation. But it's not only sovereign, it's seeking. In other words, God didn't just say, I want you to be mine, I hope you make it. God rather sought us out. How did he do that? He did that by sending his son Jesus into the world so that he might make possible our salvation through his sacrifice. And then there was the work of the Holy Spirit in us so that we might be able to understand Christ's work at Calvary, embrace it by faith, and come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. You are saved today not because you wanted it. You're saved today because God sought you first. God loved you first. And any love you have for God today is a response to his love for you. God came seeking you. Now there are two purposes in the death of Christ that are laid out for us in this passage. It says at the end of verse 9, God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The first reason that God sent Jesus so was so that we might have life through Christ, eternal life. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is John 10 and verse 10. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it, what? More abundantly. God doesn't want you just to exist. He wants you to have not just eternal life with him forever. He wants your life to be an abundant life right now, a life of relationship with him, of walking with God. You're in 1 John. Just look over the page, chapter 5 and verse 11. 1 John 5, 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us, what? Eternal life. And this life is in his Son. People often ask me, how can I know I have eternal life? Well, the Bible says if you have Jesus... You have eternal life. And the Bible says that everybody who comes to Jesus seeking salvation, he will receive them. He will never cast them out. Listen, God has worked in your heart, and if you have responded to the gospel and you have put your trust in Jesus, you received eternal life in the very moment of believing in Jesus. And so the first purpose was to give us life. The second purpose, notice in verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son for this reason, to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've talked about the word propitiation several times, but I want to just remind you this definition. Propitiation is Christ, through his death on the cross, here's the key phrase, satisfied God's wrath. As the propitiation, God poured out the wrath that you and I deserve. He poured it out on Jesus. And pouring it all out on Jesus, he satisfied God's wrath against our sins. He canceled our debt. What is our debt? The wages of sin is death. And he paid the price for our salvation. The Bible says that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been purchased by God. What a glorious truth this is. Today, if you're saved today, God has no anger whatsoever of any kind towards you today, and he never will again. Isn't that good news? He poured it out on Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, 
But I had probably a couple of reasons this past week the Lord had every right to be angry with me. But he wasn't angry. He may have been saddened by what I did. And he wanted me to confess that and repent from my heart, which I did. But he never got angry. He will never get angry because he poured out all that wrath on Jesus. So he came not only to give you eternal life and abundant life, he came also to satisfy the wrath of God against your sins so that you can be at peace with God. What a glorious thing that is. I put this down in my notes. Jesus' death was not an accident. It was an appointment. It was an appointment. There was a moment determined by God when Jesus would die for you. He did not die as a martyr. He died as a mighty conqueror. And we know that because Jesus not only died for our sins, but on the third day he rose again in victory over sin and over Satan and over death. Jesus Christ is alive. He's the mighty conqueror. And he gives us the free gift of eternal life. It's a glorious thing that he manifested his love in practical ways, giving us eternal life and being the propitiation for our sins. The third thing I want you to see is the obligation of love, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought, those are important words, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Now this, this passage is tremendously important and I hope we can understand it by the time I get done here this morning. The first thing under the obligation of love I want you to see is our responsibility. Our responsibility. He says, if God so loved us, the question is, did he? love us? It really should be, and the word is often translated if, but it should say, since God loved us. That, it can be translated either way. And I believe the more appropriate way is since, because there's no question about God loving us. So since God loved us, we, who are the we? We who have experienced that love, the recipients of that love, the saved. We also ought. What he's saying is, here's a responsibility we have. We ought to be doing something because God so loved us. We ought to what? Love one another. Now, generally within our families, generally, <laughs> we have love for each other, right? Our human families. We don't always agree with one another, but bottom line is, we still love one another, right? We have parents and we have brothers and sisters and if you get out beyond the aunts and uncles and the cousins and so on I can sit here today and say of my family that I love them I, I can't think of anybody that I would say oh I don't love that person I, I, I do I, lo I love my family but I want to tell you something folks when it comes to being in the family it's one thing you know for, for me to be able to look and say you know God loves me and I love God. That's, that's a great thing. But you know what God wants his family to do? He wants his family to love one another. Within the body of Christ, he wants us to make each other our priority. Be concerned about the interests of others. Not just your own interests. Love one another as I have loved you. So he's saying, take my example of how I have loved you and love one another in that way. Folks, it is our responsibility to love the members of the body of Christ, all of them without exception. Even the ones that are hard to love. And there are some of those. Of course, they go to a different church here in town, but not, you know, not ours, right? That was a joke. Okay. The Apostle's point is that since God in sovereign mercy graciously displayed his love in sending Christ to us, the saints should surely follow God's example and love others with sacrificial Christ-like love. Listen, think for a moment about everything God has forgiven you for. 
Think back over all those years of your life. Some of you are much younger, some of you are much older, but I would dare say every one of us has an endless list of sins that we have committed. And in spite of that, God loved you. And you keep sinning against him, even as a child of God, and he keeps loving you. He's always ready to what? Always ready to forgive and restore. That's what we have to do with each other. We have to sacrificially love each other, even when a person is undeserving of that love. But we love them because God loved us. We follow the example of the Lord. We do what he did. The truth is, if we follow one another's example, we may mess up now and again. But we need to follow his example, and his was the perfect example. Notice this text of Scripture, Ephesians 4.32. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You say, well, the word love doesn't appear there. No, it doesn't, but I want to tell you something. It takes love to be kind. Isn't it hard to be kind to some people? It's going to take God's love to be able to be kind. Are you always tender-hearted? Or sometimes you're hard-hearted. Sometimes you mean-spirited. Anyone ever here gets mean-spirited sometimes? He says we need to be tender-hearted to one another. We're going to need God's power to do that. We need his love manifest to be tender-hearted. We need to forgive. Isn't it hard sometimes to forgive other people? Especially if those people have not acknowledged the wrong they did to us. But you're not told to forgive only if they ask for forgiveness. You are to forgive anyway. You are to forgive up front. And to take every step possible to seek reconciliation. And only when they refuse to be reconciled have you done everything you can and you are free to let the matter go. That's what the Bible teaches. So if somebody does something and hurts your feelings, it is your responsibility to make that issue right. First of all, by immediately forgiving even if they have not said they were sorry. And number two, taking steps to be restored with that person. Seeking with your, by yourself, and then secondly, with two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't resolve the issue, then the matter is to be taken to the church. That's what the Bible teaches. And if we have not taken those steps, folks, we are not loving the way God loves. Because God reaches out to us. He has already, listen, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I hope I don't sin again today, but I probably will with a thought or something. I will have a, a you know, a, a thought I shouldn't have. And I want to tell you, do you understand God's already forgiven me? He's already forgiven me. He's not waiting to forgive me. He forgave me at the cross. But what will he do? He will work to restore me. Oh, he's going to convict me. When I read the word, I'm going to see certain verses and I'm going to be reminded that I didn't do that one right. I didn't obey that scripture. The spirit of God is going to use the word. God's going to seek to restore me, but he isn't waiting to forgive me. He's already forgiven me in Christ. Brethren, that's how we're supposed to do it. I want to tell you something. You do that. If you, if you are kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving as God was in Christ to you, it's going to mean that you take step after step after step after step because no matter what, you will seek reconciliation with your brother or sister in Christ. And it's only when we go through the entire process and that person has rejected all attempts to bring about reconciliation, it is only then that we are free to let go of the situation and leave them in God's hands to work according to his will. I don't know about you, it's going to take an awful lot of love. It's an obligation. It's a responsibility that we have. But notice secondly in verse 12, notice the reason. The first reason is in verse 11 actually. Beloved, if God so loved us, and down below it talks about he loved us, what? First, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. We are to love others because God loved us first. We have experienced his love. When was the last time you stopped just to meditate on that? To think about all that God has done for you? 
and all that he continues to do. We ought, we ought to be a, a praising and a thankful people, amen, for all the blessings he gives to us. What great continual love. God loved us first, and so the overflow of God's love for us should be spread out abroad to our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Yes, we're to return love to God. We are. But God says it's not enough just to love him. You must love my other children. It's kind of like saying, I love you, but I hate your family. No, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. I, 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 like, I love you, Lord, but you know, that group over there, I don't want anything to do with them. If you take that attitude, folks, you're not loving the way God loved you. How would you like to have been in a little group that God says, I love everybody but that little group, and you're in that little How many want to be in that little group? I bet you don't. Well, there's nobody out there in the group that you can't love or that you're not supposed to love. And so we love because God first loved us. Secondly, we love because God is revealed to the world by our love. This is so important. Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. Now let's just stop there for a moment. This is true. No man has seen God at any time. There are people who were given glimpses of God like Moses, but the Bible says that, God, that Moses only saw the back of God. God didn't allow him to look straight into his face. The Bible says that if any man sees God, he will what? He will die. And so he says here, no one has seen God at any time. Now there is other scripture where it says of Jesus, Jesus says, I have seen the Father. Jesus saw the Father. We haven't seen the Father, but Jesus has seen the Father. Now follow through what he's saying here in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. Now he's just talked about we who ought to love one another. And then he says, no one, that's the we, none of us have seen God at any time. Physically, visibly, again, God is spirit, but we have no ability to see God. If we love one another, God, who cannot be seen by us, God abides in us, and his love has been what? Perfected in us. Now, I want you to think through this with me. The Bible teaches that Jesus came into this world to reveal the Father. And he reveals him to whom he chooses to reveal him. Just reading in the Matthew's Gospel as I'm studying in my own devotional time right now. There were people who came to Jesus and they had questions and they would say, we want to see a sign or we want you to do some great miracle. We want you to do something in the heavens that we will all just be amazed at so that we can believe in you. And Jesus refused to do these things. And when he would teach them, he would teach them. When they were asking for those kind of miracles, he would begin teaching them in parables. And you know why he taught them in parables? Because he didn't want some of them to understand. He was judging them for their unbelief. And he says, I am going to share the message, but I'm going to share it in a parable because some of you, having eyes you will not see and having ears you will not hear. He said, because of your unbelief, you will receive the story, but you won't understand the story. But, he said, I am going to reveal it to those who believe, those who have the disposition to believe, and what they believe, I will increase their faith. I will increase their understanding. So Jesus came to reveal the Father. People need to see and to know God. One day we're going to see him, amen? We will. We'll be in his presence. But I have seen God through the eyes of faith. Through the scriptures, I've come to understand what God is like. And I know that that God of the Bible, it says, He abides in me. He remains in me. Now, when we often think about God being in us, we think of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and He does. But the Bible says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all indwell true believers. But Jesus is the only one who's ever seen the Father. And now here's the point he makes. Jesus came, 
While he was here, he revealed the Father, he manifested the Father, but then he died and he rose again, and where is he now? He went back to heaven. So Jesus is no longer here to manifest the Father. So the question is, how are people going to see God? They can't see him directly or they'll die. Jesus is no longer here to reveal him as he did during his earthly ministry. So what is the hope of people seeing and knowing God? He says, here it is. His love, that's his loving nature. His love is what? Perfected in us. Literally, it's made complete in us. And what he's telling us here is this. People will not see God's love unless they see it in the love of believers for one another. When we love each other, people will look at us and say, they can only love each other that way because of God in them. And so it is very important for us to understand that it is through love among the community of saints that the world can see the reality of God's love. His love is made complete in us. Notice this statement. The unseen God thus reveals himself through the visible love of believers. Let's just stop there for a moment. Every time you, in a sacrificial way, show love to somebody else, people catch a glimpse of God through the love that you manifested. That love that originated in God because God is love, it's his nature, and was manifested in his son, not only in just coming and revealing the Father, but ultimately by going to the cross and rising again from the dead, he, his love is manifested in his son, that love is now demonstrated in his people. Jesus isn't here anymore. But we are. And we are his body. He is our head. And we are to be the manifestation of God's love in the world. Folks, think about that. It isn't just the way you treat the unbelievers that will help them to, to know God. It's the way we treat one another. Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples if you go to the East Wilton Union Church on Sunday morning. Is that what it says? No, it says, they will know that you're my disciples if you what? If you love one another. Because they're going to say they are so much like Jesus. What amazes me is when Peter and John were before the religious leaders of the day, they're in Acts chapters 3 and 4, it says of them that they took note of these unlearned and ignorant men. In other words, they weren't trained in theology. They weren't trained in some rabbinical school. And they said they knew of these men that they had what? That they'd been with Jesus. Folks, listen, being with Jesus is supposed to rub off right? Walking with him, it should come out in the way in which we treat each other and talk to each other and th even think about each other. Even if somebody is in terrible sin and they're a brother or sister in Christ, instead of condemning the brother, it ought to be compassion we experience for the brother because that's what God feels. Does your life manifest Jesus Christ to the point that people see when you treat other Christians with a love that from the human perspective is a miraculous love that they see Jesus in you? That's the goal, folks. And John is making this point. He says, listen, love God, love one another. That's very important. But understand this. The only way the world is going to know and see God is as they know and see him through the revelation of God, through your love and my love for each other. Now that's a serious thing. That's a sobering thing. When you consider the fact, and I'm going to keep saying this, folks, most of us never see each other except for the hour we're together on Sunday morning. 
How much opportunity do you have to manifest before the world your love for your brethren on Sunday morning during this morning service? What I, my point is, is brethren, we need to be a whole lot more involved in one another's lives. I didn't say in one another's business. It's not my place to get involved in your business. But it is my responsibility to get involved with you as my brother and sister in Christ and to love you and to reach out to you and to, in those times when you are undeserving of that love, to show you that love anyway and not get haughty and not get, you know, uh, hurt and offended. No, I, what I need to do is just say, Lord, I want to I be restored to my brother. I want to be restored to my sister. And that's not easy, but it's something we need to do. Now, where does the power come from? Notice verses 13 to 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. He's just said one of the ways we know is because love is perfected in us. But now he says because he has given us of his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now notice in verse 13, first of all, the presence of the Holy Spirit. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Literally the Greek is given us out of his spirit. In other words, that we not only just receive him in us, but there is a participation with the spirit, him working in us. We've been given out of the Holy Spirit. What? This ability to abide in God and as a result to be able to love one another. The Holy Spirit lives in us so that we can know, that is know and understand, and we can do be strengthened to obey God's will. And in this context, God's will is what? Loving one another as he loved us. So if you want to love adequately and properly, you must have the Holy Spirit in your life and you must be actively cooperating with the Holy Spirit. The fact that the Spirit lives in you does not automatically give you the power you need. You need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? You do that by confessing sin, staying close to God, and submitting your life continually to the Spirit's control. That's what the filling of the Spirit is. So we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. You know why that's true today? You know why you know the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world? The reason you know that is because of what the Holy Spirit has done for you. You wouldn't understand these things automatically. This is not a natural thing for men to believe. To come to an understanding of the gospel requires the work of the Holy Spirit. He works in us so that we can understand the gospel. Now this is a passage that is familiar to us. John 16 and verse 8. And when he has come, in the context he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He does this in our hearts in preparation for salvation. The Spirit must work in us first or we will never believe. Now notice what he says. He says, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But then he defines them. He says, of sin because they do not believe in me. Do you know the greatest, in fact, the only sin that will take you to hell is unbelief. Every other sin man may do can be forgiven through the blood of Christ. But if you die in unbelief, you die in your sin, and if you die in your sin, you go to the lake of fire forever. And so he says, the first thing the Spirit wants you to realize is your greatest sin is what? It's unbelief. You need to believe in Jesus. Then he says, in righteousness. Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What is that all about? 
Jesus is talking about the fact that he came into the world to manifest the Father. And he revealed the righteousness of God through how he lived his life every day. He lived sinless, perfect. And he says, but you know what? I'm going to my Father and no one's going to be able to see the righteousness anymore of God in my life. So what he's saying is you need to understand that there is a righteousness you do not possess, a righteousness which you need. And what is that righteousness? It's the righteousness of Christ, right? We get that righteousness when we put our trust in Jesus. We're clothed in his righteousness. And that's why God accepts us. So the Holy Spirit wants you to realize that you're not righteous enough to get to heaven. You need the righteousness of Christ. He's your only hope. And then lastly, he says of judgment. Because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, the ruler of this world is the devil. What he's simply saying here is this. Listen, the devil wants you to understand something. If you follow the devil who is the enemy of God, if you follow him in this life, you must follow him into the next life, to the lake of fire. That's why part of preaching salvation is preaching the judgment of God. If you reject Jesus, if you do not believe in him, if you do not receive his righteousness, which is by faith in Christ alone, if that does not happen, you will come under the eternal judgment of God. And that's the ministry of the Spirit to teach you all those things. And because we believe these things and act upon them, we come to Christ. We respond in faith and we believe after the Spirit of God has done His work convicting us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so that's the work of the Spirit in us. The reason I'm saved today is because He revealed to me the truth of Christ. The Spirit of God did His work, thank God, and I'm saved today. The third thing I want you to see in verses 15 and 16, the work of the Holy Spirit through us. We said his work in us to bring us to salvation. Now his work through us, verses 15 and 16. Whoever confesses. Now what does the word confess there mean? To confess something means to proclaim, to declare as truth. And he says here, he who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... And by saying that, he's talking about that God is manifest in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's the Son of God. He says, whoever confesses this, God abides in him and he in God. Believing in Jesus, in who he is, not just what he did, but in who he is. You could believe he died on the cross, but if he were just a sinful man, that death would mean nothing. You have to believe not only who he is, but what he accomplished for us. And he said, when you do, God abides in you and you abide in God. I love those verses in John chapter 10 when Jesus talks about the fact that, that we're in Jesus' hands and Jesus says that he's in the Father's hand. And that's a double security that you and I have today. That's a glorious thing. So John is making it clear. He says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. He's saying, we saw Christ while he was here, literally, physically, we saw him. Christ manifests the Father while he was here, bringing us salvation. Now the apostles are giving witness to the world of this truth. And once we come to know it and we confess the same, we become a part of the same family of God. And God comes to indwell in us and we in God. What a glorious thing. We confess our faith before the world through a demonstration of true love in the community of believers. Now, do we share the gospel message? Of course, we need to do that. People need to hear the message of salvation. But listen, your words will mean nothing if they are not backed up by your life. You could perfectly explain the gospel message and do so in the flesh and hinder the very work of the Spirit of God in the life of an individual. 
We share the gospel, but folks, you need to have the reality of Christ manifest in your life for that message to have any power, to have any effect. But one of the ways in which we do that is by loving one another in the community of believers. The reality of love is manifested in both deeds and words. Deeds and words. Very quickly, just verses uh, 17 and 18, the perfection of love. Love has been perfected, made complete among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. What's that mean? All right, let's talk about it. First of all, what I want you to see is that this perfection of love gives confidence when we stand at the Bema seat of Jesus Christ. When one day we stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives. Now, folks, what is the Lord going to evaluate on that day? I've got good news for you. God is not going to evaluate your sins on that day. He took care of your sins at the cross. God is not going to have a sheet come down from heaven and put out in front of everybody every bad thing you ever thought, every bad thing you ever said, every bad thing you ever did. How many say hallelujah, amen? Not going to do that. He took care of sin. Sin is gone. It's buried in the depths of the deepest sea, the scripture says. It's as far as the east is from the west, which is an, an immeasurable distance. But what he is going to evaluate are your works since you believed. What have you done with your life? And one of the things he will evaluate is how you have loved your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Now notice what this verse says. Love has been made complete among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now folks, when you think about the judgment seat of Christ, does that make you happy and excited? Or does it make you a little afraid? Now, I know for a lot of people, when they talk to me about the judgment seat of Christ, they're not looking forward to it all because they somehow think all the terrible things they've ever done are not going to be made known. I want to tell you, God is going to take all of your works and somehow separate them from you. I don't know how God does that, but God does a lot of things I don't understand. He will take every work you've ever done since you've been saved and he's going to take those works and he's going to put them through a literal fire and those works are either going to divide into one or two categories. They're going to be gold, silver, and precious stones or they're going to be wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble is burnt in the fire. And guess what? He doesn't go through and say, you did this, 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 this. Or you failed to do this, 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 this. No, no, no. He just separates all those evil works, those things that were not for his glory, and he burns them to ashes. So there's nothing left of those things. But your good works, the things that have been pleasing to God, the things that have honored the Lord, will come through the test of fire. They will be gold and silver and precious stones. And the Bible says that God is going to reward us for those faithful things that we have done. We should look forward to the judgment seat of Christ as a positive thing because it's the day God gives out his rewards. Now, there's no question if I have a lot of works that end up in ashes, I think I'll feel sad about that because I want every part of my life. Don't you want all your life to glorify God? Don't you want that? Y you do want that, right? Yeah. But we know that they're not all going to. I may even do the very right thing. It may look absolutely good, but my heart wasn't right when I was doing it. I was doing it for attention. Or I was doing it for praise or applause. But the Lord knows. And he just says, you may have done the right thing. You did it for the wrong reason. I'd just rather burn that up because that doesn't really glorify me. That was all about you. But what is left? After the test of fire, he's going to reward us for. It's a day to look forward to with joy. And he says here, notice, he says that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, in other words, not going cowering, oh no, what's going to happen to me now? That's not the way we're supposed to face the judgment seat. 
We're to go in boldness. Why? Here's the last phrase. Because as he, capital H, as he is, so are we in this world. What's he saying? He's saying we will have boldness when we face the day of judgment. If in this world right now we are living like Jesus lived. If we're following in God's steps and obeying his commandments, we're seeking to live for his glory. On that day, we will not be fearful. We will be there with confidence in the presence of God. Why? Because we've been seeking to walk with him every day. That's why every morning, brethren, when we get out of bed, the first thing, the thought of ours should be, Lord, help me in everything I do today to bring glory to your name. Why? Because we're here to live like he lived. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. Listen, when you are really loving the way God wants you to love, you don't have to be afraid. You may not get the response to that love that you want, but it doesn't change the fact that you have loved the way you were supposed to love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. What he's talking about, the fact, is that people dreading because they, they know, listen, when you and I are not walking with God, how do we feel inside? Have you ever felt tormented as a Christian? Because you knew things weren't right with God? Have you ever found yourself living in a moment and say, boy, I sure hope the Lord doesn't come back today. This wouldn't be a good day for the Lord to get. Anyone ever think those thoughts, or is that just me? What he's saying is live for him every day. Make his glory your only purpose in life. And when you live with that intentionality, you will be more apt to please God. So no matter when he comes, when the trumpet sounds, you can look up and say, Glory! Hallelujah! Because he's come for the church. I'm not saying, hear the drums say, oh no, not now. <laughs> Brethren, when you wake up in the morning, this is your new opportunity. Look, you can't make up for yesterday. If you mess it up, just get it confessed up and leave it behind and start today anew. Today is fresh. Today is new. Today is real. And seek to live for his glory today. Folks, it could be this day he comes. Amen? It could be this day. He who fears has not been made complete in love. What they're saying is, listen, if, if you're afraid, if you realize you're not doing right and you're struggling on the inside because your life is not right, you know what you're not doing? You're not, you're not resting in the love of God. And you feel upset because you think you've disappointed him, and you maybe have. But what we need to remember is, is our God is always a God of love. He's always a God of restoration. He is just waiting for you to confess with repentance. Isn't that good? Some of you didn't eat your Wheaties this morning. I don't know. I tell you, I'm so thankful. Because if I, if I couldn't go to him and know he was ready to forgive me, I'd, I, I don't know how I could face another day. Honestly. I don't know how I could, could live with myself. All right, we're going to stop there for today. When you think about the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, folks, don't be afraid. No need to have fear. Your sins are gone. They're under the blood. The works that are displeasing to the Lord since you've been saved, he's going to take care of them too. He's going to burn them up so that they will not exist. And you, he's going to take the gold and silver and precious stones that come out, whether that be much gold and much silver and many precious stones, or whether it's just a little gold, a little silver, and a few precious stones, but whatever comes forth from that fire, he is going to reward you for that. That's why we should always love his appearing. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. May God bless his word to our hearts today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together and study the scriptures. 
I just want to pray, O oh Lord, that we will go out of this place today encouraged, that we will realize, Lord, that it is our responsibility to love one another because you loved us first, that, Lord, our testimony to the world is manifested most clearly in two ways, by presenting the gospel, yes, giving the doctrine, giving the, the message of salvation, but also by loving one another within the body of Christ. Those are the two main ways in which love is perfected in us. And Lord, one day we're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness. We're going to stand before you, and, and we know that because the Holy Spirit has revealed the gospel to us, we've become your children, and since becoming your children, your Spirit participates with us as we surrender and cooperate with the Spirit. And Lord, we are seeking to live even as Jesus lived when he was in this world. And one day, Lord, you'll reward that faithfulness. We look forward to it, Lord. Bless your people, and I pray, Lord, that you would go with us as we go to our homes today. And Father, I pray that again in this week you will protect our brethren and our church, and the other churches in this area that proclaim the gospel. Protect your people, Lord, from this coronavirus. We just commend it into your hands, Lord, and ask that you would help us to just rest in you and to trust in you even in these uncertain days in the world. Thank you that nothing is uncertain for you. You are sovereignly in control. Bless your word to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope it's been challenging and exuberating and uplifting in your life as it has mine. We hope it helps you walk closer with God and understand Him better and the truth He's laid out for us in His word. If you've really enjoyed this sermon or it's had a great impact upon your life, leave us an email or go to our Facebook page or our website and just leave a comment that we might know exactly how it's impacted you. It's very uplifting for us to see those things, for it helps us to push forward to continue doing these. Well, that's all I got for time. Until next week, God bless.